It's so easy for us to forget that the children are growing and we're growing too. We know the children are growing. We're watching it with our own eyes. We take all the pictures. We sit and look at them later at night and go, my goodness, where did the years go? But are you remembering that you're also growing too and that you're a better parent every day and a more experienced parent every day? Every day you're getting better at this job. And I wish we would give ourselves more credit for that. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. We could not be more excited to talk to our guest today. We have Susie Allison from The Busy Toddler. Susie is a former kindergarten and first grade teacher turned stay-at-home mom. She is an author and one of Instagram's favorite moms because she gives us so many tangible tips to help us navigate how to keep our children happy, thriving, and frankly, entertained. Susie, we told you this right before we started, but when we told our listeners that you were coming on, they freaked. So I would love it if you started by telling us what your inspiration was for starting Busy Toddler and a little bit more about yourself. Of course. So I'm a Pisces. I like long walks in Target alone. (laughs) But no, about Busy Toddler. So I started Busy Toddler in June 2015. So I have been doing this a long time. In June 2015, I had a 25-month-old, a five-month-old, and I was drowning in early parenting. And I felt like I was the only person that had ever gone through this ever. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was just at this moment, especially with my toddler, where I missed being with him in the morning. I was overwhelmed with the newborn. And I was trying to figure out a way that I could have this connection time with my toddler, also keep myself busy. And just keep us afloat and keep us from using Daniel Tiger as an unbelievable crutch. (laughs) So I started doing little activities with my son and we didn't have two nickels to rub together back then. So I looked for everything I could in our house and I started pulling out old bins that I'd had from college that were full of just junk and looking at my measuring cups and looking at old office supplies I had. And I thought, you know, I can put these together and we can have some fun every day while the baby naps. And I can feel like we can have our little connection time. And maybe I'll post these on the internet and see if other people are interested. And it turned out other people were. And then our story on Busy Toddler just kind of evolved from me just sharing activities to me just being really open and honest about what motherhood looks like and what parenting looks like and what this journey is for our family and trying to normalize the mess of it and the fun of it and the joy of it and the frustrations and lay it all out there for people. Well, Susie, you do all of that and definitely so much more. And the fact that you're able just to look at a bin full of random stuff and you're like, sensory play, like that's why we love you so much. We're going to cover so many things today. But one thing that Amy and I have been really vocal about is what a big transition it's been for our biggest littles and also for ourselves since both of our oldest children started kindergarten this year. So we'd love to hear your stance as a former kindergarten teacher and now a mom. What are the best ways that we can support our kiddos when they're transitioning? into kindergarten. And I know you love to talk about the kindergarten readiness. And for you, you define kindergarten readiness a little bit differently than others do. So please dive into all of this. Yeah, absolutely. So kindergarten readiness became this really big buzzword, especially in the last decade, particularly in the parenting community, as though our entire goal for these first five years of life should be to get them ready for kindergarten. And I want to shift the narrative back away from that because We get really wrapped up in kindergarten as though this is like this end goal of early childhood when really it's just the beginning of their formal education experience. And we shouldn't be looking at it as an ending point, but rather just one of those benchmarks that kids are walking towards. And the benchmark that kindergarten becomes if your children are leaving the home is it's this time where they're going to stand independently away from you. And they're going to be asked to start to have an independent life. And that's hard and that's scary for us to consider, but that really is what kindergarten and that transition is. 
But instead, what it's boiled down to lately is that kindergarten readiness should be this list of standards and benchmarks. And as long as our kids can count and know their numbers and, you know, can recognize some shapes and some alphabet letters, then they must be ready for kindergarten. And that's just not the case. It's great to have academics and it's great to have some of those skills memorized, but they're really basic skills and they're just memorized tasks. When instead, if we're really looking at kindergarten and saying this is this moment, this child is transitioning away from the home and out into the world without their parents standing next to them, then let's try to get them ready for that. And let's do that by giving them experiences in the world so that they have what we call background knowledge and they can make connections in school. Connections are a really big deal in school. It becomes a lot easier to learn to read and learn to do math and learn about science when you have seen a waterfall or when you've watched a construction site or when you've read a breath of books in your house. That becomes a much bigger and easier thing to do. And the other thing we can look at is just helping them to become ready in their social, emotional learning. So we could look at things like, are they able to win and lose graciously? And that's a hard skill. And that's something that we're learning, I think, throughout all of childhood. But really, when we get to kindergarten, we're being asked to do that and have that skill in front of a group of 20 other kids. And that becomes very daunting. So Doing games with your children might seem silly when you're thinking about getting them ready for kindergarten, but playing games with them and making sure that they lose is actually a really big part of getting ready for kindergarten. Another couple of really big skills is making sure your child can ask questions. Ask questions to an adult is a huge part of the school world. And we want to make sure that our kids aren't sitting there with their thoughts or with their questions, but they're putting them out there and that we're honoring those questions and we're answering them thoughtfully so that they can see the value in having questions. One of the things I always say to my kids is smart people ask questions. They don't just sit there. So if we can really get our kids to ask questions, that is absolutely such a huge skill. And another one that's really, really awesome is to be able to try to solve a problem without an adult's help. Mm. And that comes really at the home area. And we want to be modeling for children. How do you solve a problem? If you have siblings, that's a great way to practice. If not, then you practice at the park, you practice in church group, you practice in play groups, you talk about how do you solve a problem if a parent isn't there. And you want to really instill in your kids ways that you solve problems as an adult. So maybe you take a deep breath maybe you walk away for a few minutes maybe you talk about it with the other person. Maybe you back away for a second. We want to be modeling these for our kids. So when they get into a classroom setting, things like peer relationships and problems with peers isn't interfering with their chance to learn. So when we think about kindergarten readiness and we think about that transition, try not to get so bogged down in the academics of kindergarten readiness and also try to avoid looking at kindergarten as this end goal of early childhood and instead just look at it as this benchmark where we're trying to get kids ready for this chance to stand on their own. And while the ABCs and one, two, threes are great, those aren't going to help our kids ultimately when they're being asked to be away from us. So instead, give them the skills and give them the experiences so that they're ready to be those independent learners that we so want them to be. Oh, Susie, <laughs> it's like the first 10 minutes. And that was such a valuable answer already because I love the way you teach that as a parent, I know that I was feeling a lot of pressure really early on into kindergarten because here you are getting these test scores and you get a percentage rank, like your child is literally ranked against their peers. And I know for me and for other parents, that has to cause some level of stress if you feel like your child's behind. I remember Max's kindergarten teacher telling me how hard his brain was working during the day. And so at night, she really wanted him to be home and enjoy his family. And yes, read a book, but don't try to like catch him up in a way that other people might start to be like, oh, we really need to work on these ABCs. So I was wondering if you could coach us through not panicking or feeling bad if our child is a little bit behind. So I think what we have to think about and what we have to remember is go back to when our children were learning to walk. And when they were learning to walk, we were really good. All of us were at understanding that walking happens on a spectrum. And some kids are going to walk at nine months old and some kids are going to walk at 18 months old. And that's a really broad developmental spectrum. Of course, there are 
developmental delays that can come up and there are kids that are going to walk earlier. There's all sorts of different compounding factors. But when we really look at it, we say, well, here's kind of what we call the typical developmental range of walking. And we might say that that's nine months to 18 months old. That's a really big age range. That's a really big age range for people that have only been alive (laughs) for a few months. And we're really good at seeing that and saying, you know, Some kids are going to walk earlier and some are going to walk later, but they're all going to be walking. And by the time they walk into, say, kindergarten, we won't know which kids walked at nine months and we won't know which kids walked at 18 months because we trust that developmental process and we trust the fact and we understand the fact when it comes to walking that all kids are going to walk at a different time. They're going to walk when their body is ready, when they've developed these muscle skills, when they've developed the motor skills, when they figured out how to put all these parts together in their brain and in their body. What happens when we get to kindergarten is we kind of forget that. We start to think that kids should be on this really rigid schedule and that everything should happen at the exact same time for every kid. Back when they were little, we understood it was this really broad range of months and months and a huge percentage of their life that spanned a difference between each kid. But unfortunately, when we get to kindergarten, we start to look at them and we think that they're all supposed to be cookie cutters and they're all supposed to be the same. And they're not. They're the same kids they were when they were learning to walk. And some are going to learn to read first. Some are going to learn to read later. The point is, is just to help them to find their path, to honor their path, to see the learner that they are and to say, great, you're this kind of kid. You're the kind of kid that reads earlier, or you're the kind of kid that's reading right down the middle, or you're the kind of kid that's going to take a little bit longer. And that's okay. What isn't okay is when we start to compare those kids in a very aggressive way where we're saying they have to be at this exact time, the exact same. And that really is doing so much damage to our kids because then they're, what you're saying, missing out on that time when they come home from school, maybe, to just be kids and to decompress and to relax because we suddenly want to help them catch up. But back when they were 12 months old, if they weren't walking at the park and you saw another kid that was walking, you didn't bring them home and put them through walking practice when they got back home and say, well, you got to do your walking homework because that kid was walking already and you're not. We didn't do that. We took a breath. We said, well, that's so cool. That kid's walking. How awesome. Yeah, no, they're not walking yet. You know, they'll get there. And we've got to start applying that back into kindergarten and back into math and back into reading and back into all these other areas because it really is the exact same developmental process and path. And we do such a great job in the early years. And I just really want to urge everybody to try to reapply those skills you had back when they were learning to walk into especially reading. Reading becomes the hot button issue, especially into reading. That was such a refreshing answer. And I think for so much of our community, I mean, Amy and I included, we're nodding our heads over here. It's just such a good reminder of like taking it back to the basics of these are our children. Like they are all going to be a little bit different. And Susie, our third was born with Down syndrome. So he's 20 months old right now and not walking at all. So even just thinking about this, of like, I don't have any pressure on him to walk right now. Right. It's just like taking up the pressure for, yeah, for like Lucy to be not reading as well as some of her peers. It's like, that is so, so helpful just to think about that comparison and just gives us a break, like to not be so focused on this one thing, especially when it comes to reading. I know that one definitely is happening in our house. So that was a really good reminder. Reading's a tough one. It's it's one that we really narrowed down into this. Well, it's got to be this kindergarten skill. And really, when we talk about it in the education world, we're looking at how the child is reading by age eight. We're looking at it in third grade. But for some reason, we've shifted it into kind of our parent community that it needs to be something in kindergarten. And there are standards out there that say that kids need to be reading at grade level text by the end of kindergarten. And that's questionable developmentally. It it is questionable in the education community developmentally. Is this appropriate? And when we start to look at how kids form and how they develop, we want to make sure that they're reading by age eight. So at age five, what you're looking at Remember, they have three more years of growth. We don't need to rush this and push this. They've got years and years of growth ahead of them in this. Just the same as we look backwards from age five and we think how different they are from age two to age five. Think about how they'll be from age five to age eight. And you just, you have such a bigger window than we give this process credit for. That is so helpful. And that was one of the big reasons that we wanted to have you on. I know one reason parents love you is because of how approachable and non-shaming you are with your teaching. And one thing that stuck out to me recently was when you posted about how it's okay if you're not the messy play parent. So you said, Susie, we give what we can and we don't have to feel guilty about what we can't. So that stuck out to me. I think sometimes we're trying to bend ourselves and mold ourselves into this version of a mother that we aren't comfortable being. It's not us. 
So can you talk a little bit more about this concept of every type of play or activity isn't going to be for every parent, every child or every family? Yeah, I think one of the really interesting parts about activities is we see activities online or we see parenting online or different things online. And we think, well, that must be what I have to be doing. That must be the gold standard. This is why it's on the Internet. Obviously, this must be, you know, the 10 out of 10. And really, that's just one person's opinion. It's one person's approach. And I always liken it to this. It's no different than food. We would never expect that all children or all families in the world would like the exact same type of food. We know that. We'd never, ever cross our minds to say, oh, yeah, no, everyone likes this. It's just not possible. But we don't do the same thing with activities and we don't do the same thing with parenting. We look at it and we say, well, no, it must fit for everybody. And it's not the case. It's no different than, you know, we look at the food blogs and we look at the recipes and we go, oh, that might work for my family. That might not. Oh, you know, I just my family's not going to love that one. So I'm going to pass it. But on activities, we often look at them and we go, well, her kids liked it. So I guess my kids have to like it. And if my kids don't like it, then and we start to get into that spiral that we're so good at in parenting. We're so good at no one spirals like a parent. We're so good at it. (laughs) But if we could really reapply all those skills that we have when we're looking at a new recipe to looking at activities or looking at an idea in parenting, and we just weigh it and we go, would my kids like those ingredients? Do I feel like this is something that would work for us? And we think about it, we weigh it, we decide if we're going to cook it, we decide if we're going to do the activity or try the strategy. Sometimes even something that we think is going to work, we're like, oh, this recipe is going to be delicious. And then we make it and we're like, this was terrible. Order pizza immediately. And that's how it is with activities. Sometimes, you know, we vet it through our brain. We think, oh, this is going to work. This will be awesome for my kids. And we try it and we're like, well, that was the best. Turn the TV back on. And that's okay. We need to be able to give ourselves credit for knowing our kids and knowing our family and knowing what's going to work for our family and be successful for our family and remembering that our family is different and our family is unique and we have different variables than any other family. And so all I can show as an activity blogger and a parenting blogger and education is what may work. I can give a suggestion. This may work for your family. No different than this recipe may work. It's your job to then look at it and apply it to your specific family and go, yeah, that might work. Or no, that will never work. And I always think that there's actually value in that. I always say, you may look at what I do and say, I love it. Great. Let's go with it. You may look at it and say, oh, I could see that working. I would tweak it this way. Or you might go, no, I hate that idea, but at least you know what you hate. And sometimes that's almost more important (laughs) to know what we really don't like. So I would say when you're looking at parenting accounts, when you're looking at activities online, apply the food rule. Would your family like it? Maybe. Do they like the ingredients? Maybe. If they do, try it. If not, pass. Go to the next one. No big deal. Yeah, I always love to remind our listeners too. It's like people show what they're really good at usually. And so I am a messy play parent. I have to tell you your vinegar and baking soda. Like we've had explosions in our kitchen because our kids just get so aggressive (laughs) with the amount that they use. But like I can handle that and it's not a stretch for me. It's like it feels comfortable. It feels like home. You know, that's how my parents were. Whereas I know for other people, like it is really hard for them to see such a mess. Like they're seeing the mess instead of seeing it as like a really fun activity. So maybe that one isn't for you. You don't have to do that one. Yeah. And you don't be stressed about not doing something. Yes. I feel like I talk all the time on my Instagram about my hatred of Play Doh, which is so ironic because. I will do the most disgusting, messiest activities. My kids play in a mud pit in our backyard. I was going to say the mud in your backyard. There's mud in my backyard. I'll have potion bins are our favorite where I just throw out like Dawn soap, baking soda, shaving cream, water, and vinegar. And I will like just throw it in the backyard and be like, yeah, no, you just do what you think is right with this. But bring a thing of Play-Doh near me and I just recoil in horror. I hate it. And isn't that so funny? And that's where that whole post that I made where, you know, we give what we can. I can't give Play-Doh and I'm fine with it. You know who can? My neighbor. And my kids have the best time doing Play-Doh with my neighbor. And she loves it. She loves that this is what she can give. She, however, does not have a mud pit in her backyard. Her kids (laughs) can go to my house for that. And that's great. 
It's so amazing when we can just respect ourselves in parenting. We often get so good at respecting other people in parenting and we respect their, I respect your choice and I respect your decision and I respect the way you feel about that. But are we doing the same thing for ourselves? Do we respect mm-hmm. ourselves? Are we respecting our choices or do we often second guess ourselves? And I think that's a really important thing to think about is to try to treat yourself the way that you're treating the other parent because you give them a lot of grace and you give them a lot of slack and you give them a lot of respect. But are you giving yourself mm-hmm. the same amount? Uh, you know, and we often are just so hard on ourselves as moms. And that's something that we are trying to change. You are trying to change. When people come to your Instagram account, there is truly something for everyone. And another post that spoke to me was you said, I don't do housework at nap time and here's why. And then you went on and you talked about how you want your children to see all the hard work that it takes to maintain the house and then also how they might be able to be involved in that. And during nap time, you actually need a break to take care of yourself. And I wanted to tell you why this spoke to me in particular. When we first had our children and they were a little bit younger, I wanted to do literally everything while they were sleeping. So either nap time or when they went to bed, because Drew and I, we were both working parents. So I felt like we already had a really minimal amount of time at night. So I was like, how could I spend that time, you know, even loading a dishwasher? And then I started to realize like I was really burning the candle at both ends. Like I couldn't keep that pace up because it just wasn't working. So I started to see the opportunity like you were talking about to show them, you know what, mom's going to load this dishwasher quick and then I'm happy to play with you or see how we could involve our kids in a really age-appropriate way. So I would love if you talked a little bit about this, because I think there's a lot of moms out there that are still trying to fit everything in during nap time and bedtime. Oh, you know, it's one of those things that I talked about for years on my Instagram stories. And then it just started creeping into my feed, this idea that I do what I've always called a union break in the middle of the day when my kids go down for nap time or rest time. And even now my kids are much older and there's still this quiet time in the afternoon and my office hours are closed for them. And I take my break and I need that time. So I was having the same feeling you had. I was burning the candle from both ends. I was a stay-at-home parent and I was rushing through nap time, trying to get everything done that I could possibly think of to make sure that I had plenty of time for my child in the afternoon hours. And I realized I was missing the chance to take my break and to be me and to recharge. And honestly, I was looking at my husband's schedule at work and going, hey, that guy gets a coffee break. He goes to the bathroom with no one watching him. He gets a lunch break. There's an always an afternoon break. And then he gets this, you know, glorious 45 minute long commute home, which doesn't sound as glorious before you have kids. But once you have kids and you're like, I would sit in a car for 45 minutes, hands down, I would totally do that. I would take that break. And I started to realize I wasn't getting any of those little breaks during the day with the job that I had. And so I wanted to make sure that I got my me time and also that I got this chance to model that our home is a community. The home is not something that just mom or just dad takes care of. It's something that our whole family takes care of. And it takes hard work and it takes time and effort. And if we all pitch in together, a real teamwork model, then we can get this done and we can have our fun and we can have a nice space in our house. It's not going to be pristine all the time, but it's going to be good enough. (laughs) And it felt so much better to me to have that chance to model to my children the hard work that I was doing as a stay-at-home parent to keep our community clean, to offer them the chance to watch that, to offer them a chance to help. And the number of times, especially as they were little, that they would hop in and want to help wash the windows or want to maybe try to fold a washcloth. And we could do these things together and they could see the value in hard work and they could see me modeling that hard work. And then when nap time came around and it was time for a break, I could sit and I could watch some trashy TV and eat a sandwich without offering anyone a bite. Maybe go to the bathroom without an audience and have this time to just be me for an hour and a half, maybe two hours if I was lucky, if the nap gods were smiling on me that day. And I found that I was so much more refreshed for the afternoon hours when they woke up then 
because I'd had that time to reconnect with myself and to recharge my battery. And that after nap to dinner time, I always call it purgatory. <laughs> it didn't feel so much as purgatory once I was recharged and kind of ready to to hit the ground running for the afternoon. And it made me function so much better as a parent. And it made my children function so much better. And now as I'm seeing the benefits of this paying off, I get to look back kind of as hindsight parenting. And I was sick the other day and I said to my kids, I said, I can't and our house has fallen into disrepair and I need help. And my eight-year-old pulled out the vacuum and my six-year-old grabbed a dustpan. And those kids had that house pretty darn clean in about seven minutes of hard work. They got the downstairs pretty well put together. And they did that because they knew what to do because they'd watched me and they'd helped me for years. And then when I truly needed them to step in, they were there and they were ready and it was awesome. And a lot of people ask on the weekends, do my husband and I apply the same strategy? Because of course he's you know working throughout the week and we do. When the kids go down for naps or rest time in the afternoon, Chuck is often the primary parent on the weekend and he takes a break. He's just had this really grueling morning with them, playing, hiking, doing whatever dad stuff he's doing with them. And yeah, he takes a break too and he recharges his battery and he gets ready for the afternoon evening hours. And it's just become this big kind of tenant of our family of how we structure things. And we all work together as a team. This is a community vibe. We do a a teamwork feel in our house. And that's the way that we can all pitch in and, and make it run together. But it does require work. And it required a big shift in my mindset of how I was going to run things. And at the end of the day, it gave me a break in the afternoon that I so desperately needed. And especially now looking back, and I look back at myself having had, you know, the three-year-old, the not even two-year-old and a newborn. And I think, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I took those breaks. And I'm so proud of myself for seeing I needed that and going for it. I so hope it helps others to see that too, that they have needs too that need to be met. Well, in taking and making that shift now, it will just save so much time and energy down the road. And I like what you said there about the burnout and just the burnout that we can feel. You mentioned the purgatory. And for those listening who are feeling that burnout right now, thinking about Susie's answer as a win-win for not only modeling that behavior of having that home be a community and having them learn the ropes so that they can help you out, but then you also get those breaks every single day. Like you get those pieces of you time back that I know so much of our community is missing right now. Yeah. It's amazing how much of your own life you can fit into nap time. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that's such a good answer. And a quick break from our podcast sponsor, which is Third Love. So think about that favorite item of clothing that you have. Maybe it's a pair of shoes or a sweater. It's the one thing that you put on because it feels good and it fits right from the start. You didn't have to break it in. It was perfect the moment you bought it. For Third Love, that's their 24-7 classic t-shirt bra. It's their number one bra for a reason and thousands of women agree. It offers unparalleled comfort thanks to every unique detail in its fit, style, function, and design. The 24-7 t-shirt bra is designed to fit and form to your body because every detail has been made with ultimate comfort in mind. So for instance, the ultra-thin memory foam cups give your boobs everyday comfort and support. And the luxe straps, they never slip. This bra is so smoothing, it looks invisible no matter what you wear. So if you haven't taken the quiz at thirdlove.com backslash herself. Make sure to do that. Did you know that over 80% of women are wearing the wrong bra size? I had no idea. But Third Love makes it easy to find a bra that fits you and actually fits you right the second that you put it on. The fitting room quiz is like a personal shopper, but it's better. It focuses on size, breast shape, current fit issues, and your personal style to find bras that are perfectly made for you. And if for some reason it doesn't fit, no worries. Exchanges and returns are free for the first 60 days. Our listeners also get 20% off by going to thirdlove.com slash herself. Again, that's thirdlove.com slash herself for 20% off. So Susie, you have so many free resources for parents and also for kids. And I know many of my friends, they found you during the pandemic when their children weren't able to go to daycare for a while. They were out of school and it was such a hard time. And you quite literally saved the sanity of so many parents. And Susie, on your website, you say, my mission is to bring hands-on learning back to childhood, support others in their parenting journey and help everyone make it to nap time. So can you talk about how parents can start incorporating activities into their parenting? I have always viewed activities as a tool. 
And I always am very upfront in saying I may post an activity every day to Instagram. That doesn't mean I'm doing an activity every day because activities are my tool and they're something I keep in my back pocket. And I use activities when I need help or something isn't going right in our morning routine. Maybe one kid is fighting a lot with the other. Someone can't find their play or my third born is trying to reattach its umbilical cord to me. That's when (laughs) I reach for an activity and I say, you know what? We need a reset button. And I think a reset button is so valuable, especially in early childhood, to stop and to give everything a pause and a real quick reset. That changes the mood and it just shifts the energy of the house. And so when I would see the ship sinking or things were going under, I'm losing it, they're losing it, whatever wasn't going maybe perfectly for our day, or we were just absolutely staring at the walls then I would pull out an activity and I would use that activity, whether it be a sensory bin or an art activity, or we're going to put post-it notes and hide them around the house and run around and find them. Something really simple, but just enough, just that little bit enough to reset the mood of the house. And I never want activities to be complicated. You shouldn't be spending a ton of time on them. You shouldn't be spending a lot of money on them. We're talking the fastest, simplest reset button you can. And it's amazing after a child does these activities, how it really does shift the mood and changes the mood. And either maybe they can find their play or you've had time to think and to shift around and readjust and figure out what we're going to do for you know the rest of the morning. It's such a gift. And we don't need them every day. There are some days and plenty of days where I'll go, oh, you know, we really don't need an activity today. Everything's going smoothly. And there's other days where I'm like, this could be a three activity day. Easily could be a three activity day. This is going to be a rough one. But I'm so glad I have these in my back pocket. And I'm so glad I'm able to share them on my website and on Instagram. And I always tell people to look at it like you would look at a cookbook. And no one's asking you to go downstairs right now and to bake a cake from scratch. You can't look at a recipe, just, you know, wing it. We don't do that. (laughs) I don't do that. At least I find a good recipe and I use it. You can just use my stuff as a good recipe and just use it and try it. And see if that helps shift the mood and change the way things are looking for your day. And I really, really believe in the power of this as the world's best reset button to just really shift everything and to make a major change in your morning with something as simple as a post-it note. I loved that answer coming from you because I think when we do find you and we see all of these activities, it's really easy to think like, oh my gosh, Susie does four of these a day. She's on top of, and for you to say like, no, that's not actually how you use them, I think is going to be really powerful. I also wanted to tell you my kid's favorite thing is when we need a reset, we go to your account, we click on the real button and they just find one of the activities that they want to do. And usually we have the stuff because you keep it super simple and it is such a reset for our family. So we are enormous fans. I love that so much. I wanted to also, because this next question just pairs perfectly with what we're talking about. I feel like we're in a time where, and maybe this has been common in the past, but moms really feel the need to be constantly available or that they're constantly entertaining their children. So I wanted to ask you to talk about independent play and how if families aren't there yet, how they could work more towards getting their kiddos to play without them. Yeah, I've been trying to talk about this a a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot on my feed because this notion came out that play is something we need to do with our children because that's how we're going to help our children grow. And that's how we're going to make sure that they're connected to us and show our love. And we're going to do all of this through play. Yes, we can. But also (laughs) play is supposed to be the work of childhood. That's a really famous quote from an old philosopher, Jean Piaget. And he said, play is the work of childhood. And we know this, we see this almost mattered like it's a bumper sticker that children should be playing. But what we fail to remember is that play is the work of childhood. It's not the work of adulthood. It's supposed to be the work of the child. And instead, what we started doing in parenting is to maybe eliminate boredom or to make sure they're doing it right or to make sure the kids aren't fighting or because we feel guilty if we're not with them all the time. Parents have started interjecting themselves into play. And a term came out in the late 90s, and I'm trying to remember who said the term. 
the term was intensive parenting. And this was kind of coined during the late 90s that parents are giving more attention and more energy into parenting. And instead, what that's doing is it's creating parent burnout and guilt and making parenting a harder thing than it used to be. We talk a lot about in our generation of parenting about how hard this is. And we are right to believe that it is harder than it was for other generations. And that's because of things like intensive parenting, where we've gotten this idea that we have to be doing and being with our children all the time. And if we're not doing that, then we're failing as parents. And that really isn't the case. When it comes to play in childhood, the best kind of play a child can do is play without an adult. And that's really counter to what we've been told and what we've been taught and what we see online. Online, we see a lot of play with your kids, get down on the floor with them, make sure you're connecting with them all day long. And yes, have those moments of connection, but do not under any circumstance feel that you need to be playing with your child every moment of the day. And in fact, it's better if you don't. We know from education research experts and hundreds of years of child development data that kids learn more and play when an adult isn't there. When adults are there, we accidentally change play. We shift the narrative. We change the bits of imagination the children can give. We may alter the rules. And then one education expert, Peter Gray, he was really great at pointing out that one of the biggest aspects of play for a child is that the child has free will in play and the child is able to do as they wish and to start the play and stop the play as they want. But when an adult's there, they may feel guilty stopping the play or they may be less inclined to stop the play or change the play because they don't want to hurt the adult's feelings. So right there in that example, we can see where adults playing with children really changes play for the child. And it truly does make it less beneficial than it may have been if the child was playing independently or at least independent of an adult. So it could be a child playing by themselves. It could be a child playing with siblings, could be playing at the playground with other kids. What we want to see more of is kids playing really without that adult. And that is going to mean a shift for us as parents into saying, no, thank you. I can't play right now. I'm doing and whatever you're doing to change and to stop putting away and aside our tasks to join them in what really is their work. So often we give up our own work time and our own chance that we have to maybe answer an email or to take the phone call we need to or to unload the dishwasher or fold the laundry because we give up that time to go and sit with them in their work. But we have to remember that play is their work, not ours. So some of the things that we can do to start building that skill at home, if that skill isn't something you have there, some kids are born with that skill. I have two like that. Some kids are not born with this skill. I have one like that. And some, it's just because of the environment they've been in that their parents have been very open to always playing with them. And instead, it's kind of shifted to where they can't play without the adult anymore. They've lost that ability to play. So let's build that skill again. Here are some things you can do. You can make play a predictable routine. So instead of making play something dismissive, oh, just go play, which I mean, how many times a day do I say that? Oh, just go play. But when we make it kind of that dismissive, it doesn't sound very enticing <laughs> to go play. So instead, if we can shift it and have it be something really routine, every day after breakfast, they know that they're going to go off and play. And you talk to them about that. You're going to go play after breakfast. And here are the jobs I'll be doing while you're playing. Let them know you're going to work too. At the same time that they're going to work, which is play, you're going to go to work and do whatever tasks it is that you need to get done. Making it predictable also helps them understand when they'll get the chance to do play again. It opens it up to more curiosity, more imagination. All sorts of great things happen when we make play a predictable routine and try to build that routine in a couple of times a day. Maybe it's after each meal. Maybe it's after or before a rest time or a nap time. Try to make it predictable within your schedule the same way that we would schedule in a sport or a class or dance schedule in play because it's as important, if not more important than all the other things that we end up scheduling into our day. Start small, aim for five minutes, set a visual timer. I'm big into visual timers. We forget how abstract time is as adults. We know what five minutes is. Kids have no idea the difference between five seconds, five minutes, five hours, and five days. They don't get it. So get a visual timer, something that they can see counting down so they know how long you're going to be on. I'm going to go 
unload the dishwasher. It's going to take me five minutes. I'm going to set this timer. You're going to play while I do this. That lets the child know when you're going to come back and connect with them. They're not going to not see you forever. <laughs> you're not going to be unavailable forever. Just for the next couple minutes, you're going to be unavailable. Another big way that we can grow independent play is maybe moving the toy to a room where we're going to be. A lot of kids don't want to be separated from us, and that's okay. They don't need to be separated in a completely different area of the house or the apartment from us. Move them in a blocks to wherever it is that you're working at. If you're unloading the dishwasher and they're hesitant to play in a room where they can't see you, move a bin of blocks into the kitchen so they can be building while you're unloading the dishwasher. They can still be doing independent play with you near them. It just means you're not actively playing with them. And then the last thing we can do is we can really value play. Talk to your kids openly about why play is important, that this is how you learn. And just like I have my jobs and you can list out your jobs, you have your job. Your job is to play. And this is a way that your body grows and your brain grows and your spirit grows and all the good parts about you grows more when you're playing. So I'm going to go do my job and you'll have your job and then we'll meet together again later. And I think one of the biggest things we can do in parenting right now is to understand that this might be hard. At first, it isn't going to happen overnight. And that's okay. Not everything's going to happen magically overnight in parenting. We know that it takes work. Set the boundary. I'm not available to play right now. I'll be available to connect with you in a little bit. I have to do these jobs. We cannot afford in our load as parents to put play as our job. We have too many jobs. It must go back to being the child's job. And it is going to take a big shift and it is going to take setting up some boundaries. And if what they choose to do in that five minutes is stare at the clock and watch it tick down, then that is their choice. (laughs) And we'll try again next time. But I'm going to unload that dishwasher and you are going to do whatever it is that you choose to do during that time. And then we can continue to increase that amount of time until we get to a point where the child truly has reclaimed that skill of playing by themselves. And we have reclaimed the ability to get our jobs done and our tasks done. And we have eliminated an unbelievable amount of parent burnout that comes as a result of this need to be playing with kids all the time. I really hope that helps. I know that oh, was so much. And I said this a bit at the beginning, Susie, but your answers are so refreshing. Like that answer gives our audience the permission to not only continue doing the tasks that you were doing, but then not feel guilty for continuing to do it. And like making it predictable, having that little bit of routine, starting small, those can be steps that our audience can take right away to start doing that because it can definitely help out with the burnout that so much of our audience is yeah. feeling. I think so many people got caught around this idea that the best way to connect with a child is through play. And then we lost sight of all these other great opportunities to connect with kids. And I always say, you know, I'm really bad at playing. Like, I'm not good. Do not ask me to sit and play Paw Patrol with you. Like, I don't know what's going on. I am going to put the wrong pup in the wrong truck. I'm going to offend you. (laughs) It's not going to work. (laughs) But here's what I'm really good at. I do a dynamite read aloud. I do great voices. I love doing a puzzle. I love games. I love taking a walk. I would love to cook brownies with you. I would love to sit and color a picture. And I really try to create this boundary with my kids, with how I connect with them and how we have our relationship set up. And then I really leave play as their job, just in the way that I'm not asking them to answer my emails or (laughs) take care of my DMs or something. There are certain parts of work that are going to be separated. And for me, play is a separation that is there job and I have my jobs and but here are other things that we can do together. And so I'd really encourage parents to just look at other ideas for connecting and try to eliminate that idea that play is the one and only. Mm, so important that I'm going to keep that one with me. These are the episodes that I'm so glad we have recorded because I can go back and listen to all your one-liners and just feel <laughs> so much more settled in parenting and just I love 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 that response. A quick break from our sponsor, BetterHelm. Parenting is hard. We've had a lot of episodes about this lately, and it's one thing that I would talk to my therapist about. She helped me to realize just how hard I was being on myself, and she gave me a lot of prompts to help me work through the guilt that I was feeling. So parenting, mom stuff, that's just one of the many things that you can talk to a therapist about. And at BetterHelp, there's therapists that specialize in almost anything. 
when you take the questionnaire in the beginning, you get matched up with one that specializes in what you need help with. So if you want to join the over 2 million people that use the BetterHelp services, you can go to betterhelp.com backslash herself for 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com backslash herself for 10% off your first month. So much of our audience, Susie, has young kids. And one of our stay-at-home parents sent this in as a question for you. She said, every day feels like a billion years. Tell me this doesn't last forever. And I know that I can get so caught up in the weeds, in the day-to-day grind, you know, just trying to get through it. So I'm really looking forward to your response on this one. It does get better. Let me tell you, it does get better. It is amazing. In any other job, we're really quick to see and say, well, this person's really new to this job. Oh, they're just starting out. Oh, the other on probation. You know, we're training them right now. Nobody trains us. They hand us a baby and we walk away with it. That's it. There's no, like, there's no one chaperoning us. We're just told to start this job and to suddenly be immediately very good at it. And in no other profession would that ever be allowed ever. There'd be their massive training days and you have a supervisor and someone's going to help you. And they're also going to cut you slack for a while because, oh, they're the new person. But we don't do that in parenting. We assume that the second we start, we're immediately going to be good at this and immediately have all the answers. And immediately we should be as good at it as the person that's been parenting for nine years. I've been parenting for nine years. I still look at now at people who've been parenting for 18 years and I go, tell me more. Tell me what you can tell me because you've been doing this longer than I've been doing this. It's so easy for us to forget that the children are growing and we're growing too. We know the children are growing. We're watching it with our own eyes. We take all the pictures. We sit and look at them later at night and go, my goodness, where did the years go? But are you remembering that you're also growing too and that you're a better parent every day and a more experienced parent every day? Every day you're getting better at this job. And I wish we would give ourselves more credit for that. We're so good at giving the kids credit and going, oh my gosh, they've gotten so much better at mealtime and they're doing so much better about how they sit and, and keep their food on the plate. Are you also giving yourself credit that you were doing a really good job and that you've learned how to help a child to eat dinner at the table without throwing it? Because you did. And that was something that was a skill you didn't have when you started this job and you learned it on the job. Nobody sat there and taught you how to do it. You learned it. And I wish so badly that we could remember not only are our kids growing, but we're growing. And so, yes, it will get better because you are getting better. And that's why it's going to get better. It's not getting better just because the kids are getting older and, oh, the kids are, it's so much different. The kids are, there so much, you know, the kids are just better. It's just easier because the kids are older. It's better because you're better. That's why it gets better. So you keep walking forward. Keep walking through the weeds and you have to know that you are getting stronger and better and smarter and more experienced every day at the same time that the kids are growing up. And what's happening is those things are going to complement each other. And that's when it's going to start to feel easier. It also feels easier when you just recognize that, how much better you were than you were yesterday than the day before. Grab a picture today. Look at look at a picture today from six months ago and look at yourself in that picture and go, oh my gosh, I know so much more than I did six months ago. Because how true is that? Sometimes I'll look at pictures of myself back when the kids were little, little, and I'll think I am so much wiser than I was back then. And that's a lot of why it's getting easier. It's not just because of the kids or because it just gets better. It's because of us. We're all getting better. I love that answer. And like just the thought of the collaboration between the parent and the child. And it got better because every single day you showed up and Mm -hmm. parented that child and you both learned so much along the way. And you're right. Like it's so easy for us to be hard on ourselves. But during this interview, multiple times, the theme that's coming up for me is like, also give yourself credit, like give yourself credit for the hard days you made it through for everything that you do as a parent. I think we forget to do that. And I think it's even sometimes a little easier for us who have multiple children because we can see it immediately applied to the second, third, et cetera, kid where we go, oh my gosh, that would have been really tough with my first because I wouldn't have known how to handle whatever this child is 
throwing at me literally or figuratively. But, you know, as you've gotten better at parenting and, you know, if you choose to add more children, then you get that chance more to see your growth. It's a little harder when you have only one. You really do forget to give yourself that credit of just how good you're getting at this. You may forget. And I hope you don't. I hope that no parents forget how much better they're getting at this. Oh, same. I love that answer. As we finish up here, I wanted to tell a little story that I've actually never told before to anyone except for my family. And I have told Abby, my family was at a water park over Thanksgiving weekend and our oldest child, Max, actually got lost. We had a one-to-one child-to-adult ratio. We had a plan. We like had handoffs, like we really thought that we had ensured that this wasn't going to happen. But my father-in-law and I kind of had this miscommunication. I thought that he had taken Max to a different part of the park and just forgotten to tell me. And he thought I knew where Max was. So once we came together and no one had Max, of course, this like panic set in and was just like, I have to to find him. I have to figure this out. I can't let all the emotions that are coming up right now, like stop me from action. So the story ends very well. Max had learned in kindergarten that if you're lost, you should inform a grown up helper. So in this case, he recognized that the lifeguard was the grown up helper. And he told him that he was lost and the lifeguard actually helped him back to where all of our stuff was. So I found my son standing there with a lifeguard. But Susie, I wanted to tell you this story because the thing that came up for me when I reflected is we were so excited for the weekend that we forgot to remind our kids what to do if they got lost. We forgot to cover that. And we were so thankful that Max had learned that in kindergarten. And he was like calm as a cucumber when I found him. I was expecting tears and like that he would be freaking out. And he very much wasn't. But I read your blog post and it said, good parents lose kids and good kids got lost. And when I was reading it, I actually was crying because I was like, oh, that was such a jarring experience for me. So I wanted you to kind of talk us through what we can teach our kids of what to do if they get lost, because I know it happened to me. It's happened to you. It really could happen to anybody. Oh, well, first, hold on. Let me stop crying. Give me like half a second. (laughs) I'm so proud of Max. Good job, buddy. You did it. I think that a couple of things have happened. We have this stigma around our own beliefs of what people will think of us if our child gets lost. And we also have an innate fear of our children getting lost. And then that brings up this idea that we then just don't really want to talk about it because, you know, I just don't want to admit that this is a possibility. And, you know, I'm a great parent. (laughs) I'm never going to lose my child. Like, no. And we really start to get into this idea that like, oh, it must be like a bad parent or, you know, someone was, they were just doing something they shouldn't be doing. And that's how their kid got lost. And see, that's never going to happen to me. Good parents lose kids and good kids get lost. Just exactly like you said, this happened to us at Disneyland. I'll, I'll share it really quickly. This happened to us at Disneyland and we were getting off of a ride and I had the two older kids and I was looking at the map and my husband went off to get the stroller and I thought that he had our littlest and he thought I had our littlest who's five. And it turned out our littlest had kind of wandered trying to find Chuck to get in the stroller because, you know, he's a third born. He wants to get in the stroller ASAP. And instead he walked past Chuck and he was lost within a half a second of us stepping off of a ride. And I recognized really quickly what had happened. And the first thing I thought of was he knows what to do. I knew what to do, but I also knew in my gut, he knew what to do. And I was going to find him. I was going to find him fast. And so here are the tips that I want to give every parent. I want to make sure everyone knows to do this. So what we taught our children to do was to stop moving stop, sit down, just stop moving. A moving child, a wandering child is a so much harder to find child. So we always tell them the second you recognize that you're lost, stop, stop moving, turn around. And once you've realized you're lost and once you've stopped, start turning around and look for an adult with children. 
look for an adult, look for a family. Families are instantly recognizable to children. They feel comfortable talking to someone who they also know as a parent and maybe with other children around. At Disneyland, we also added in to look for the cast members because the cast members at Disneyland are easily recognizable. That's not so convenient when you're at somewhere like a concert in the park or even at like a children's museum. It's a little harder to recognize those people, but Disneyland is a very special place where the cast members are readily accessible. So we always taught them to go find that person and to also to be loud, to loudly say, I'm lost, I need help, and to be very, very loud and vocal about their need so that other people are turning their attention to them. And at the same time, that's what I was doing. I was running up Paradise Pier yelling, I've lost my child. He's five. He has red shoes. He's wearing a Wreck-It Ralph sweatshirt. And I'm running and I'm sprinting up and down this Paradise Pier yelling that over and over. And what I can tell you in that moment is the number of people that stopped what they were doing and started looking for this child. Because as another parent, as another human, you want to help so bad. And that's what we forget as parents. We forget how much other people want to help us and want to support us. We get so isolated on this island by ourselves. And we think, I'm so embarrassed right now that my child is lost. I just want to find them and pretend this never happened. Instead, get 50 people also looking for your child because everybody wants that child found. And if I had not been as loud as I was, we wouldn't have found Matt nearly as fast as we did. And instead, as I'm screaming, running up and down, this person showed up and they were a young person, maybe 20 years old. And he grabbed my hand and he said, I know where he is. And if I hadn't been yelling, that person would never have known, never have known that I was the mom who was trying to find the child that he had seen sitting with a cast member. And he pulled me through this pretty substantial crowd over to this spot on the pier. And there was Matt chatting with Debbie. <laughs> and he was just sitting, having a nice little chat. He was so happy to see me but it took everyone to find him. And that's the big thing that we have to remember is you need to get loud. When your child gets lost, don't be embarrassed. Be as loud as you can. Everybody wanted to help and everybody was so happy to help. And Matt knew exactly what to do. And when I found him, just like when you found Max, I expected to find him in an absolute heap, complete disarray. This is gonna shift the whole vacation because now he's gonna be so dramatized. And he was like, hi. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, like, hi, I'm like a mess right now. And he's like, this is Debbie. <laughs> and I asked him and, and I, and Debbie said, no, he was great. He walked right up to me. He said, I'm lost. My name's Matt. And my family was going to guardians of the galaxy. And she said, great. We'll hang out until they figure out where you are, you know? And she just sat right down with him and thank goodness for Debbie. And I asked Matt later, I said, Hey, how was that? Like, what happened? Can you tell me how were your feelings when that happened? He goes, oh, I was fine. He goes, I figured out I was lost. I turned around. I saw Debbie and I realized I wasn't lost anymore. <laughs> and that was it for him. You know, for him, I think in Matt's mind, he was lost for like 17 seconds. Whereas for us, it was like two and a half minutes of hell. But for him, it was so short because he knew what to do. And that is something we have gone over with our kids since they were two years old. I mean, our oldest was two. So for our youngest two, they have always known lost protocol. You stop moving. You look for an adult with children. You loudly say you're lost and that you need help so that other people know that's why you're talking to this family. And then you, the parent, and I told them, I will be yelling at the top of my lungs that you're lost and I will find you so fast. And I did. And for even for my older children, it was such a great moment for them to realize like, wow, she's serious. Like she will get loud if we're lost. <laughs> She'll get really loud. It's so hard for us to consider our kids getting lost and to feel like the stigma and burden then is on us. But instead, this happens. Crowds happen. Miscommunications happen. Kids wander. They're wanderers. They look down for half a second and realize they're too far behind us to see us. That's how kids get lost. And it, it's scary, but everybody there wants to help you. Everybody there wants to see you reunited. So get loud, teach your kids a protocol, have an idea of what to do and talk about that all the time. We don't just talk about it before big events. Sometimes I'll just randomly quiz them in the car as we're driving to a park. I'll be like, okay, 
pop quiz. You realize that you can't see me. What do you do? And they tell me back to me what their plan is. What do they need to do? And we have gone over this constantly. And so when it happened, although it was unbelievably scary, the first thing I thought truly was he knows what to do. I just got to figure out where he is, but he knows what to do. It was a hard day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were both in tears over here, especially the part where my Max, when I was like in the panic, there was this dad and he was like, does he have green water wings on? And I said, yes. <laughs> and he like knew exactly where he was. <laughs> but unlike you, I hadn't covered that with my kids. So I wanted to add that in because if you haven't, you know, don't feel bad. Just do it now so that they know what to do. I think we get so wrapped up in thinking we're going to traumatize them with this idea that they're going to get lost, but really getting lost and not having a plan would be much scarier. And if we can just empower them and to say, you need a strategy for what to do, because they do, you know, this even goes back to the beginning of our conversation with how do we prepare children for kindergarten? How do we prepare them for life? We're trying to prepare them to stand independent without us. And whether we want to think about it or not, and whether we intend it to or not, there are going to be moments where they are going to have to stand independent without us. And we can't be in their ear telling them what to do. We have to be in their mind. And our voice has to be in their mind, clearly telling them exactly how to handle what they're facing. And we can do that, but we have to be willing to talk about it. And we have to be willing to just, it doesn't have to be a traumatic situation. You don't need to over-explain. Sometimes we want to over-explain. Just say, hey, if you ever realize that you can't see me, because loss can feel like a really scary word. If you just use it as if, if you ever realize you can't see me and you can't figure out where I am, here's what you do. Stop moving. Look for a family. Tell them you're lost. They'll figure it out. They'll figure it out. I mean, not to sound like the worst parent in the world, but this is actually the second time this has happened to <laughs> And it was my eight-year-old the last time, and he wasn't even truly lost. It was kind of a funny situation. My daughter had, we were at a concert in the park, and my daughter had dropped a toy in a baseball field. And being the ever wonderful older brother that he is, he was looking for this toy with her. And we were watching him look for it with his head down, turning all around, looking for, you know, this toy. And then eventually we watched him walk over to these older women, kind of like a grandmother types. And we saw him talking and he's a very personal kid. So we were like, oh man, who's Sam talking to this time? Like, oh, Sam's made a friend. Like, oh, he's going to probably hit them up for help finding this toy. And then we watched them all walk to security. <laughs> and we realized, oh my gosh, he thinks he's lost. And I went running over there and I said to him, I said, what happened? He said, I was spinning and, and I could, I got so disoriented. I couldn't figure out where you guys were. And so even though I could see him and I knew what he was doing, he had gotten separated from me in his mind. And he stopped and he looked and he said, he saw these two grandmothers. He determined that they looked enough like a family and he walked over and, and it was so funny. He said, yeah, I just looked at them and said, um, I'm, and the one goes, you're lost. And he goes, I don't know how they knew. <laughs> and I said, oh, funny how we just seemed to know. And it happened to be he'd wandered up to two retired school teachers. They couldn't have been more excited Aww. to help, you know. And I think they were, you know, they were just beside themselves to get to help this kid. But it was such a funny situation because in that situation, he was not lost to us, but he felt lost and he knew what to do. He knew exactly what to do, even in that situation. And it became as simple as if you can't see us and if you can't figure out how to get back to us, you know, not necessarily that you're this horrific monster of lost, but you can't see, you can't be back, get help. We get so wrapped up in thinking that people don't want to help us so that we'll be judged or what will this look like? How will people interpret it? They won't. They'll be so relieved that you found each other and they want to help so much. I wish I could see this person who was the one who ultimately reunited Matt and me. And when I say this was a young, like mid-college kind of kid and you know, that's the kind of people that everybody wants to help. It's not just families that can react to this. Everybody is going to be helping. And I know that had I not been loud, and I think that's the hardest part, swallowed my pride and yelled at the top of my lungs. And like, 
this is, you know, just my personal problem. I'm busy toddler. People know me. So the second I started screaming, other parents ran over and knew who I was and that I'm screaming. And so how embarrassing is, could this possibly be for me? It's like, I'm supposed to be this parenting expert and I've lost my child. And now there's community members are trying to help. And one community member I heard said, what color shoes is he wearing? And another one said, it's the youngest one, red, obviously, because my son's always in these red shoes. And it was so funny because even in that moment, it's like, ah, here's me. I have to swallow so much pride to admit that my child is lost, but this is what we have to do. We have to in parenting. And it's been such an honor for us. And, and Matt really has no idea the role he's played in helping thousands, probably tens of thousands, millions of families at this point to have this hard conversation with their kids. And again, I've gone over it with him again and again. How did this feel when you were lost? And he's like, I mean, I found Debbie. Like, I don't, he looks at me like I'm just completely bonkers. It's like, come on, I found Debbie. Like, no big deal. It was not a big deal. Like, what are you going on and on about, mom? It's gone for like five seconds. Well, Susie, these are the stories. I mean, this is one of the many reasons that Amy and I wanted to have you on because so many people with your background, your education, your following, they would just sugarcoat it and be like, no, I know, I know what to do. And they wouldn't share those vulnerable stories. So for the people out there who have not lost a kid yet, like you are giving them the step-by-step -step framework so that it can be easier for them so their child can find the help and that it can just end just like your and Amy's stories with you yeah. know a good ending and a positive ending and being more confident when those really, really tough things happen. So this whole interview has been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> can you please let our audience know where they can find more of you if someone for some reason hasn't heard of you yet? <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm over on Instagram at Busy Toddler and then you can find me on my website, BusyToddler.com. If you guys enjoyed this episode, we would be absolutely honored if you tagged at Busy Toddler and at Herself Podcast so we can see you enjoying it. <laughs>